Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. I'm Gil Gross, host of Monday Match Analysis with outstanding tennis journalist Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. And for the first time since 2014, we have a new Grand Slam champion on the men's side. For the first time since 2016, it is not a member of the Big Three because Stan in, in 16 was the last Big Three member. But still yet, without a Big Three member in the mix, two of them not even in the tournament, None of them in the final. It felt like they were in the building, Amy, because neither of these competitors felt really ready to take on the role that the big three have occupied. Yes, and actually Joel's article on the men's final was superb. And I pulled this quote from his article from Dominic and it says, we both didn't face one of the big three. So I guess that was in the back of the head for both of us. That's why we were on nerves, was a very good chance for both of us. So even though the big three were not there, they were there. Well, like I wrote in the, I wrote in the story, and thank you for that, Amy. I wrote it, I, I opened with the, the time I was 12 years old and my older brother was 16 and my parents left the house for three weeks and within a week, the place was a complete mess. And uh, I think these guys knew that the big daddies were gone. And, and the other thing was that oftentimes you win that first major and it's a path towards something else. It's like, well, no, it's a path to clay where Rafa is fresh, Novak is waiting. And then, you know, Roger is not this year, but there's Roger. So it's not like both those guys knew, wow, this is the first time. Might it be the only time? I don't know. And, and it just, it just kind of, Hubbard, certainly there's the presence of the three there. And there are other factors about the life in the bubble and COVID and no fans and none of the players at the Open had played that much. I mean, this is the most under-seasoned U.S. Open ever. I mean, usually by the time they come to the U.S. Open, they've had seven, eight months of tennis. And this time they hadn't. So, But, yeah, the, the halo, the presence of the, of the absence of them was quite vivid. I wasn't ready for Dominic team to be so overcome by by the nerves because he was so good in his semifinal against Neil Medvedev and I thought wow he's really handling this new role as the favorite even at 27 years old which I think is a big part of it you realize oh my god I'm not 20 in a major final I'm 27 and I'm 0-3 in major finals but like that occasion that Sunday it just came kind of crashing down have you ever seen a more nervous match Joel Wow, that's a good question. Well, I've seen signs in matches, but I think you're right. I think we were expecting team, particularly after he solved the Medvedev problem. Because Medvedev, yeah. we knew, was the tough one. He was the one that a lot of us, myself included, thought was the next likely contender. And team got through that in a what he called the tightest straight setter that he'd ever played. But then you think you get through that, and it's like, okay, fourth final, ready to go. I'm gonna, I mean, it would have been simple to think, I'm going to beat – Zverev three, four, and four, and just kind of take this. But instead, he was he was his he was way way tight. I mean that that is very tight. Yeah, I've seen some of those. I mean, I've seen Ivan Lendl in some of the U.S. Open finals he played. Jimmy Connors in a match with Arthur Ashe. I mean, it happens. But it was just so that it was happening. Both of them it was like one of those movies where each fighter is staggering to the finish. It was crazy. Zverev, how much he was struggling with his serve. And this is a guy that can get over 140 miles per hour on his first serve. And 
he at one point served a 68 mile an hour second serve and he just became lost. So if that's the one thing Zverev has to fix going forward, I think it's eminently fixable. But the, it's just indicative of how the mind was being messed with at that point. But that's why I couldn't believe he was in the final, because we all knew about this problem. Zverev, quite frankly, just doesn't own a top 100 level kick serve. It's just, it's not, he doesn't have it. So that's what made it surprising. I didn't think he was ready to, to win a major. I didn't really think he was ready to be in a major final. In Australia, he made the semis, but that's because he was serving 135 first serves at 75% uh, accuracy. So I thought he would need to do that uh, because he can't protect his second serve. So it, it, it's weird to me. I'm torn on Zverev. Because on one hand, this is like this devastating loss. He was so close, he didn't have it. On another hand, he got way further than he could have expected and that I think anyone else expected. No question. I mean, we do our picks for tennis.com beforehand. And again, I don't really like doing that, but that's part of a little thing we do before the slams. And one of the things was to pick a, um, a, a seed flameout. And I did it again. I went with Zverev. I didn't think he was going to get to... Yeah, maybe the quarters with a draw opening and this and that. But then he's down two sets to love in that semi versus Prano Boosted. That was a great effort. And then this final, he's, he's two points from winning that match. And uh, uh, I think, though, I don't think either of them will ever play as tightly in a slam final again if they reach that. I just cannot see that happening. Doesn't mean they won't lose. Doesn't mean there might be choking moments because all of these players, including our beloved three, have all had choke moments. But I just. Um, I think this was a real exceptional one in so many ways. And I really think the thing that none of us know, none of us know, including even them, is what's it like playing something during COVID and this bubble and being tested every, just about every day for this too? I mean, that, whether you pass it or not, that creates kind of a dread factor. I don't know how it is for you guys when you get like you know, blood work or things done. It's like, oh, wait a second. Can something bad happen? So think of that. Yeah, I mean, if and if they had tested positive, they would have gotten kicked out of the tournament. So that had to have been stressful. Good point. That's right. Yeah, I mean, everything, everything was new. It, but I almost, I also think part of it is is really just the the occasion, um, and and the fact that they just weren't used to playing the role that they were being asked to play, which is what I said at the top. Also, we're simply, we're spoiled by the big three. And I think that that was a theme. And, and Amy, you were talking about the, the Twitter buzz and how everyone was like, oh, this match is horrible. You know, how the fact that you can go out in a major final and play your best, which we've seen the big three kind of do time and time again, that's the only way you, you win high 20s number of majors. Um, we we assume that that's normal, but well, it's circular logic. It's a circular. They've won so much, so therefore we think they're great because they've won so much. We've seen them play their best because they've won the best because they've grabbed the prizes. You know, it's like so they they've done it again and again. And you're right. It was fascinating to see some of this uh, almost like consumer resentment on Twitter. Like, how could these guys not play so well? Uh, boy, I mean, I don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've become so accustomed to if 
one of the big three has an opportunity to serve for the match and serve it out, it happens, you know, unless it's against one of the other big three. Then you, you got the real tense moment there. But um, another thing that happens is like you'll see Novak hit a lull in a match, but it only seems to last for a few games. And, you know, team was in a lull for the better part of two sets. Yeah, well, that's interesting again. And this is the experience and this is the occasion. And we've seen these guys, again, these three have won so many titles so often. But, you know, they've had their, they've had their storm-weathering moments. I mean, Novak, Novak, of all of them, particularly because he's the third one in on the three, he has to fight through a lot. I mean, let's go back, way back to Novak's career. I mean, the, all that health stuff before 2011 and re, early retirements and then other things. And even the kind of 18-month lacuna he had a few years ago where he was, you know, he fell out of the top 20. I mean, so he's had some of his own, they've had their, their human moments, but on the other hand, yeah, they've also won a zillion titles, so. Well, I think Nadal in the late 2000s um, had this kind of air of invincibility in big moments where he would actually play better when there was more stress and more pressure. I think Novak has had that recently, actually since the slump in 2017. Um, but I, I just think we, we don't appreciate what a powerful tool it is to, to be able to just play your game when, when you need it most and when all the pressure is on. We kind of just assume that that team and Zverev, you know, that maybe they'd get a little bit nervous, but they'd be fine, that they'd play fine. And maybe that was a silly expectation to have well i think i think a lot of the the weight on this actually falls to team because he there's such a gap between how well and how much firepower he usually brings to his matches and so in a way he was the one who turned out to be kind of the the wild card in this like he said in the press conference last night that maybe he thought that being in his fourth slam final was a liability that it wasn't helpful for it's almost like he had the scar tissue, because he, you know, we didn't know quite what to expect from Zverev, but he started off reasonably solid. But then team, that was such a gap between how well he usually plays in matches, including Grand Slam finals versus big three guys. So that was kind of like a, a real you know, head smacker. How do you think the big three has shaped and molded Dominic team's career, Amy? Well, obviously the one that he's the most like is Nadal because of his big backswing and his heavy top spin, but also he's an all-court player, just like Rafa is. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what team does now that he has this Grand Slam championship and he's going to his supposed best surface and he, you know, will have Nadal in the field. Well, it's funny though. I think there's a lot of... Uh a lot of fetter in, in team because I see, for example, the way he goes after his forehand and it's a little more flatter than, um, than the Dow. Um, the way he seeks to create offense with his backhand. I mean, I wonder if there are times when Federer was out in 2016 where he was looking at some tapes of how team, wow, this guy really likes hitting a top spin backhand again and again. This guy rarely slices it unless he's in the fifth set of a major and he's cramping. But, uh, I think it's, I think team has drawn elements and also he's figured out a way 
he's known, just like Novak had to figure out how to beat Roger and Rafa, Dominic, who's younger than all of us, these are the guys I have to figure out how to beat. And he's had some good moments against them, such as when he beat Federer at Indian Wells. He beat Nadal this year in Australia. Um, there's kind of a real lacerating physicality to Dominic team. I mean, I think, I think he's wonderful to watch play. I really like the way he conducts himself and the way he builds points. Of course, you're right, Amy, about how, when, like Nadal, when he returns serve, he's got the contemporary play court thing where you stand way far back behind the court and give it a lot of air. I mean, I, I'd like to hold teams racket, but I don't know if I could. I don't know if it, it might be too heavy for me. I mean, <laughs> that thing must be unbelievable, don't you think? The, the, the weight of his racket, it's, it's a naturally heavy racket anyway, and how he must have it to, to take those swings and with his strings, and my God. I think Chris Fowler remarked on the telecast, that, on the American telecast, that one of Zverev's second serves almost didn't even get all the way to team. I mean, the, it bounced and then it came down, and it's like yeah. he had to catch it really low. Well, that's a tactical thing that makes you think, hey, like the, some, some, some instructor, they should be teaching their kids underhand serves and kick serves and short serves. I mean, yeah, that's kind of an interesting, what if, what if when Zerv was serving out the match, trying to serve out the match, he'd served underhand at one point? Yeah, there's, there's any number of things that he could have done. That's why it was so strange to me that there's a guy who stands so far back and you have the real estate advantage right off the bat. And they said on the telecast that team's coach, Nicholas Masu, has tried to urge him to change up his return position. And I've seen him do it. He has done it some. But Mizzou remarked that team is uh, rigid in his habits. And his second serve returns in particular. Then he could vary it. And then he could bring some doubt in it. But, but I get, given how the game is being played now, why a lot of guys do this. Because if I know someone's not serving volley, I mean, Gil, you know this. This is, this is how you've learned how to play. Yeah, I... There's a, a certain resistance that people have, I think, immediately to deep return position. Um, and uh, honestly, it, I, I think it's like people still aren't used to it, which is another thing that shocks me because it's been so – how many years has Nadal and, and Dominic Thiem been returning from the back fence, yet people still are constantly commenting about it? No one constantly comments when someone serve, uh, returns serve from the baseline. Uh, so I don't understand that. But, um, yeah, I, I think that team is someone with so much power that if he can take a full cut at the ball, he can be offensive from the back fence. In this match, it didn't work. You will not, you know, I will not um, waver on the fact that in this match it was a disaster. The return was a mess for, for most of it until Zverev in the fifth set wasn't serving big anymore and then it wasn't such a mess but on on the second serve for team to move back and take a full cut and rip it if you go back and you see what that that second serve return did to Daniil Medvedev you'll see it's not that he's being defensive at all right it's it's quite right the right oh, and look you know Zverev double faulted twice in the tie break I mean who cares what your return position is if the guy double faults right but yeah, and I don't think I don't think that standing far back is necessarily defensive and offensive. It's it's tennis. It's like how am I going to get the point started? And again, if based on I, I saw this a few years ago first with Tommy Robredo, who I think is kind of a 
ancestor of Carino Busta. And I saw him returning a kick serve. It's like, oh, let it drop. Yeah, see, and I was taught when you had in the, in the shorter backswing non-racket acceleration serve volley era, if you let it drop, you were totally out of the point. So, but now it's like, guy's not serving and volleying. Guy's basically hitting this kind of little moon ball serve. It's going to take its bounce. There's its kick. It's going to come down and drop. And I'm just going to, you got enough strength and technique to really hit the ball, you know, deep, hit it deep middle. And then I'm going to run up and we're going to get the point started. It's like, why not? I mean, I'm, it's it, given the slowness right. of the court. I mean, there's some really, really fascinating things going on with court dimension at the pro mm -hmm. level with where approach shots are aimed and what that means. And, and I think these guys have, have studied this and it's, it's, a, it's a major gap between let's say how the pros play and how recreational players maybe ought to play. Like for example, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure that someone playing league doubles should stand 10 feet back to <laughs> serve. But I mean, most of the players I play against, they stand about a foot or two behind the service line. That's how they return. So yeah, they're really popping it. You know, it's, it's like the opposite. Well, yeah, because they don't have full bodied swings. They, they're, they're putting. Yeah. So they're in, in doubles period though, you can't stand back there. No. But on the other hand, if I look at league singles and the way some people are playing, I don't know. It has, it has some merit because yeah. people are going to stay there. Cause that's what, that's what a lot of singles is these days. Maybe. You just got to be strong enough. You got to be big and strong enough to do it. You need power. You're not going to no, see. Not at league singles. I don't think you need it. All you need is a committed swing. You need power if you want to hit the ball forcefully. But otherwise, I'm going to stand 20 feet behind the baseline. I'm going to hit the ball 20 feet over the net and get it there deep. I think you need not MPH power. I think you need RPM power to do that. Right. So That's you need the, the really top it if you're going to do that but that's not my thing anyway i like the net so these people baffle me yeah let's let's quickly switch over to zverev and then we'll talk about rome um at the end and i didn't preview the show at the beginning because i was so caught up in in the final but um for zverev i think a lot of people are thinking about how this might have lasting effects how he might be heartbroken but i think it could easily go the other way i mean zverev has technical problems that, that we've hit on, mainly the serve, and maybe a loss like this is exactly what he needs to, to go to the drawing board and try to fix it. Yana Navatna, during that award ceremony last night when he got emotional, I thought of Yana Navatna and the Wimbledon final she lost, mm -hmm. and, and yet also the question becomes for Zverev, technical, Mental. I mean, we don't know how well he does this stuff in practice. But was it a case where some thing came up or what? They're tied together. Right. I mean, that Zverev's, I mean if, you, if you show it to most people who, who are confident enough to have takes like this, they'll tell you the toss is way too high. The shoulder turn isn't good. You know, there, there are issues with the kick serve that is beyond mental, um, I think. So then it's practice. And I agree. I don't, I think, I don't think, for example, I think Tsitsipas is more scarred by losing that match to Borna Korch than Zverev is to losing this match, this final, knowing that he came close. Right now it hurts and hurts a lot and it might hurt for days. I mean, he talked about that last night in his press conference. He said, he said, um, 
uh, it's going to take me a few days to figure out what I got from this. But I think he will, and he's got a team, he's got a family, and he'll be able to see what it is, and we'll see. Here's a question for you guys. Do you have to have a kick serve at, at their level, or can you just hit some other variation of a slice for second serve? Is that a prerequisite? I don't think that's the kick. I think it could be a topspin slice where you hit the ball, a body type serve. I don't know, Gil, you, you, you understand the contemporary game more than I do. I think Andy Murray didn't really have a, a real kick serve. I thought his second serve was a, maybe closer to a slice, but if not a hybrid like Joel just mentioned, I mean, you have to be able to put the ball in the box. Yeah. You have you to be able to at 68 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> you have to ideally be able to get it to the righty backhand, um, which is something that Murray struggled with, but I think eventually he got there. And if you're, if you're under 80 miles per hour, Andre Rublev is grappling with this now as well. If you're under 80 miles per hour, these guys are really going to swing hard on the return. And Imagine gonna... if Zverev had had a good solid kick serve that he could get to team's backhand last night. One-handed backhand, high to the backhand. He well, then we could do serve volley, hit angle volley winners. <laughs> I, don't even think that. I also think if he was confident enough in his second serve, he wouldn't have been in the fifth set hitting his first serve at 120, where instead of 135, like he can. Yeah. He was so afraid to hit the second serve. He actually served a high first serve percentage in the fifth set, but only didn't win above 60% of his first serve points because he just wasn't going after it anymore. There were some first serves in the 90s, Gil. Right, and that, that, that is taking your weapon and putting it in your pocket and saving it for the ride home. I don't know, Joel, you're way better at, at analogies. Like that. So his, 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 serve deal, his serve deal is really strange. That's what's going on here is also, you know, and there's a, uh, how he goes about managing his serve, whether it's like aces, 130, what's the spin, what's the second serve? I mean... It's, it's we, you need to have a serve that you can count on. You usually shouldn't have more than, I was taught you shouldn't have more than one or two double faults a set at the most, really. You shouldn't double fall like that. And you should be able to rely on a second serve. And the question is, is how, it, how much, how hurt are you going to be by it? Like Murray, Murray's court speed, Murray's anticipation, that kind of kept him in it a little bit. But then it's, it's development. I mean, and this gets to the things that's really neat about the big three. Look at, it's not just that they were born great. It's look at how Nadal has improved his serve in placement and direction. Nadal, and I know lefties are different. Nadal doesn't have a kick serve. I think the one big thing that the big three share in common on their serve is they can place that thing on a dime. First, second, all three of them. Well, I'd say I'd, say I'd rank them. You'd probably go um, Roger, Novak, Rafa. Roger, most of, best of all. Yep. Go back darn good. But it's also a question of how you build the points. I mean, Zverev's got a thing going on with that forehand. I mean, we're, what was kind of strange about that final was also a lot of strange point construction. Like, what's going on? Like, it's funny. There were times Zverev was playing, wow, you're big, you're tall, you're powerful, and now you're back in the 12s. What's going on now? So it's Yeah, kind of that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if Zverev is using strategy or a strategist. Um, he should. 
Oh, no, he's got, he's talked with David Ferrer. He's got, they, they talk, I'm sure they talk about game plans, but it was kind of like, he's just kind of awkwardly reacting. It was strange. I don't think either player thought about tactics once in this match. It didn't look like it. That was so far out for them. They were just trying to hit a ball in the court. I don't think yeah. they were. I don't think so. I think, I, I don't think, I don't Gil, think so. I think you're right because Zverev was going to the team forehand way too much. I mean, if he'd been thinking tactics, I think he would have gone to the backhand more. I'm, gonna, I'm the minority here. I'm sure they were aware of tactics. I'm sure they each had plans. and I think they had some executional malfunctions, but I'm sure they were. I'm sure team was – I mean – there's a way some of these guys go about building points that's, that's a little different than, you know, there's a little high level point building, but I think there were some tax. I think there was some tightness and some execution. I think team is a great point builder. He's building him at this supersonic level, but I think he is tremendous point builder, whether it's inside out or inside in or backhand cross courts or even the occasional backhand slice, I think, but I think they each got very, very nervous about, let's say, coming forward when they should or how to close and being tight. Like, I remember that, uh, that first match point team had and he built the points and he hits the four into the net. I mean, just like nerves yeah. constantly. The nerves well, were just... He also kept slicing his backhand and it mm-hmm. wasn't working at all. Like, I think he was just afraid to hit topspin. I, I don't think that was a tactical decision. I thought it was more of a mental reaction. Well, that's a, that's a good point, too. I mean, in the tiebreak, I, I, clearly the cramping kept him from hitting tops and backhands. I think he had all yeah. slices. But I think all throughout the fifth set, I think Zverev was just loving when teams sliced the ball. I thought he, he wanted him to slice it. But then neither was able to quite take advantage. That's what made the match so awkward to watch. It's like, this guy's nervous. Why are you nervous? I'm nervous. Yeah. You're nervous. I mean, so they're all this kind of mutual awkwardness. Well, the big three are back in Rome. No, that's not true. Two of the big three are back in Rome. You have Nadal and, uh, and Djokovic. What does this tournament mean for, for both of them, Joel? I think for uh, Novak, it means, okay, let me just push the reset button and, get, and, and remind myself what it's like to play on clay. For Rafa, it means back competing. Hasn't competed in a very, very long time and um and on, on his beloved service i mean it'll be fascinating and who knows if we'll ever learn all the answers how nadal was training in these weeks was he playing practice sets was he playing practice matches how long were they what were they doing but i think he's he's incredibly hungry novak's a little more like hmm a little more pensive how great would it be if they played each other in rome oh fantastic we would love that. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, that's interesting. I think for, for Novak, it's kind of all about what a, what a traumatic ending that was at, at the Open. Um, I, I kind of think that he'll be able to brush that off and move on. I think it's that kind of thing where in the moment, you kind of, there's a, there's a temptation to sensationalize it and make it bigger than, than it really is. Because really, look, the, the, more than likely, the consequence is he didn't get to win the 2020 U.S. Open. And I don't think those consequences are going to linger. Nonetheless, I agree it's with you. to watch. I agree with you. And I think also this gets to the kind of the – I remember I've, I've talked about this with other journalists. The news narrative is not the life-living narrative. You know, Novak is going to be asked 
that that's kind of the world he's going to going to enter press rooms and we're going to do our job and that's what readers want to know and that's fine but that's different than than being a father than being a husband than being a son than going about with his tennis and it's like okay yeah I'll, I'll answer these questions for what news consumption is now this is called living consumption living consumption is an opening round match in rome I actually agree with you guys because this is the type of incident that has, uh, the book is closed. It's an ending. Um, but the one that is lingering is this players association because he took a lot of flack for not including the women right off the bat. So that is an ongoing ordeal that is, he's continuing to have to deal with. That's right. The politics stuff. That and it's also interesting. Like I was thinking about this. Wow, you want to be a leader, and when this bad thing happened to you, you skipped your press conference. That's not such a good optic for Novak that he just. Oh yeah, that and you know he has some incidents where he cuts and runs. I mean, and people are starting to talk about that more. So he's fine if there's no incident or there's you know nothing he's there doing press he's absolutely fine he's professional um but given his leadership stake in the sport now one has to wonder if that's the best look for him yeah and he i agree with you Amy, that the incident the suspension the the expulsion from the us open that happened Heard a case closed onward and but again the this atp PTPA thing, that's going to be interesting because now it's like, well, okay, what is it? What do you guys want? What are you asking for? What's it really? And, and other players are going to be asked about it. You know, there's a whole group of Europeans who didn't come to the U.S. and we got the woman and here's the French. I mean, this thing is going to continue and let's see. I mean, I'm, I'm very uh, curious about that group. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll have a show about that um, to be released very soon that we recorded during the U.S. Open, uh, but we've just had to sit on it for a bit. Um, Pete Sampras actually told Novak, look, you've you got to focus, be selfish, focus on yourself, dish the politics, be careful with that. And um, that's, that's from Steve Flink's book where um, Sampras recounted that conversation and Djokovic did as well. They, they had that discussion at Indian Wells. So I, I do think that that's something to keep an eye on is to, does the off the, do the off the court distractions get in the way of what Novak is trying to accomplish? a good question we'll see i think there's been it's gone both ways there's been instances where novak has gotten through it and there have been instances like at indian wells a couple years back where it seems like it affected him right to be continued to be seen i mean i personally i respect him for doing it and with every win that he gets when this stuff is swirling around him i i think it's amazing yeah, maybe he likes some of all that controversy and all that stuff. I don't know. I think uh, Sampras completely the opposite, completely opposite. And he's, oh, thanks, Pete. I'll do what I want anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'll, I'll go on and more slams than you and I'll do what I want. But thanks, buddy. <laughs> a lot of respect there. Let's, uh, I think it's a little bit deeper than that. Uh, all right, this has been three. We are looking forward to the return of Rafa Nadal of the tennis courts. And uh, we will see you very soon with the next episode. Make sure you are rating and review and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, subscribing on YouTube and liking the video. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.